Father God, as we open your word, may we grasp how much greater you are than we even thought when we came in here today. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you go into any grocery line, you will find that we are a celebrity-obsessed culture. You will find all kinds of magazines there that will feed our culture's hunger to know what's happening in the lives of the rich and the famous, the movie stars and the singers and stuff like that. I just picked this one up last week and I discovered, oh my gosh, Britney Spears has got a new boyfriend. Did you know that? <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely critical that we've got to keep track of what in the world is going on in our world. We're so celebrity, celebrity obsessed. It's just, and so I asked you to answer the question, you know, what's, who's the most famous person you ever met in person? So I'll tell you mine. Bob Hope. I got to meet Bob Hope. Uh, I, was, I was invited to be the, the person who prayed at a, at a big event where his, he and his wife supported this military academy, and they asked me to do the opening prayer. And so I got to shake hands with Bob Hope. Some of you, those of you who don't know, music, uh, he's, a, he's a comedian, he's a movie star, just an incredible guy. I've always loved Bob Hope. I've loved his, his sense of humor. And I got to shake his hand. But he never saw me. He never took his eyes off my wife, who was standing next to me. So... You know, we always think we, you, you meet somebody famous and you shake hands with him and somehow that elevates you. Have you ever thought that maybe you diminish them by shaking hands with them? Just, there it is. Now, Tony started last week for us uh, the, uh, just an overview of the book we're going to be studying for the next few weeks, and that is the book of James. And if James were here today, how would we introduce him? Now, if his publisher was in charge, or if his agent was in charge, we would make sure that when we introduce James, we would do everything to impress everybody with the credentials of this man. By the way, Tony pointed out last week, his name was really Jacob. If you read it in the Greek, it's Jacob. This is Jacob. Uh, the tradition tells us that when King James authorized the translation of the Bible into English that we call the King James Version, he sort of hinted he'd like to see his name show up in the Bible somewhere. So they renamed Jacob to James, and that's how James entered into the book, the Bible. But now, if he were here present today, we will be tempted to point out that James was the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think of that, how he could have taken advantage of that fact as he started his letter to us by saying, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.18, Paul writes this, After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Flesh and blood brother of Jesus. And if I were writing this and I was the flesh and blood brother of Jesus, I'd make sure that as I start the letter, I would point it out. Use it for leverage to get into our lives. Interesting thing about James and the brothers of Jesus. By the way, Mary and Joseph were normal. They had children, okay? And there were other children born to them after Jesus. But his brothers, when his brothers saw him getting uh, famous, they tried, to promote, hey, they tried to promote him and to get him to go and parade himself before others. But as far as we know, James did not believe in Jesus until 
after Jesus came back from the dead. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And notice he puts his name in among the apostles. So James wasn't just the brother of Jesus Christ. He's also called an apostle. An apostle was the, the uh, Jesus selected people who were going to be his ambassadors, his representatives, who had the right to speak for him in the early days of the church. And Paul also writes that thing that we read, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Now, the interesting thing is, we would think that Peter became the Pope. He became the father of the church. That's not what happened. James became the senior pastor. James became the senior leader. And we could call him the utmost senior pastor. Think about it. He was the senior pastor of the very church, very first church ever. I mean, think about that. Right now, we'd have a drum roll going, ladies and gentlemen, we bring to you James, the brother, the apostle, the utmost senior pastor, senior pastor of the very first church ever in the entire history of the world. That's who we're bringing to you before. And more than that, we would also say, and he's the author of one of the most significant books that has ever been written in all of history. And so we would make sure that if James were present here this morning, we would parade his credentials and make sure that everybody understood that this is James. I'm just watching the crowd just to see if James is coming in with them, but no. <laughs> so we would think, and those of us who, who are ordinary human beings would be tempted, that as you write a letter, and by the way, as far as we know, this was the very first letter ever written to the churches. And you find that James, as he writes us, is a shepherd. He's a pastor. He's caring for God's people. And he's also getting in our face. You will find that every, single ver every second verse in, in his letter is a command, an instruction to us. So he gets in our face. He loves us. He calls us brothers. But he also gets in our face and says, okay, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it better show up in the way you're living. And so you'll find that he's constantly in our face and talking to us. And he could have said, I'm the brother of Jesus, the apostle, the utmost senior pastor, the author. He could have said all these things to impress us. Here's how he starts. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as quiet as all of that. He considers himself a servant, not a celebrity. And the word servant, by the way, could also have been translated slave. And the word meant somebody who doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to someone else. He's under the authority of someone else. And he's here to do what that other person instructs him to do. And notice, he says, a servant of God, almighty God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to that in just a moment. And he's writing to the 12 tribes, which the 12, Jewish, 12 tribes of Jewish believers started to get scattered among the nations. First of all, because of persecution against Christians. And as the persecution against Christians started uh, early in the life of the church, they were scattered all over what became Asia Minor and all over the, the, the Middle East. But as they scattered, these poor Christians were, were forced to scatter because they were Christians, but they were also Jewish. And so what happened is wherever they went, the, 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 the pagan society around them persecuted them because they were Jewish 
and the Jewish society persecuted them because they were Christians. And so these are people who are living a really, really tough life. But notice something very interesting. If you, and I encourage you to go just read the book. You, you could sit down and read the book of James in about 45 minutes, the entire letter. Okay? And as you read this entire letter, to these people who were scattered, they, they had to abandon their homes, they had to abandon their families, and they were scattered and persecuted. At no point do you find him talking to them as victims. That's another factor about our culture. We're a victim culture. We're constantly looking for, oh, I'm being victimized for this. I'm being victimized for this. I'm being victimized for this. And as James writes to them, and the interesting thing is First and Second Peter, the two letters that were written to churches in perse being persecuted as well, nowhere do you find God the Spirit through those writers treating them as if they're victims. Okay? We would wonder, oh, yeah, I'm a victim. Nope. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he said to expect that you're going to face opposition. Now get on with living and following after him, regardless of how tough life is getting. And so he's writing to them among the nations, and I love his word, greetings. He just says, grace. I'm writing to you, and the, the, the word greetings means grace, and I'm writing to you to, to fill your life with grace. But I want you to notice something. He calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three words that define who he sees Jesus as. The first word, Lord, would have alerted and horrified the Jewish readers because that was the personal name of God. And, uh, in Hebrew, it's got four letters, Y-H-W-H. -H, and because the Jews were so terrified of misusing God's name, we're not even sure how they pronounced that name because they never did. They would always substitute another name. Whenever they saw those four letters that, that were the personal name of God, they would put the word Adonai in its place, Lord, rather than saying his name. We think it was Yahweh, or nobody knows for sure, but that's where they would replace it with Adonai. And right here, James is saying, I want you to know that Jesus is God. And the Jewish readers would go, they'd catch what he's saying, Jesus is God. And his name, Jesus, means God saves. Yahweh, Shua. It's right there. The name the Joshua has got those four letters, Yahweh, and the word Shua, which means save. So his name in, back then was Joshua. He's the, the person, he is God, and God saves. And he's Christ. The word Christ means he's the one who has been appointed by God to be your king and lord. So you with me there? He gives us a clear picture of of. Jesus, the person he's about to speak about. Now, hang on to that for a moment. He calls himself a servant of God. And among the Greeks, to call yourself a servant was something that was, they would recoil from. No! You never lower yourself. You've always got to make sure that you keep yourself up. You've got to have your self-esteem and your self-credentials. You've got to make sure that you never, ever lower yourself publicly. To the, to the Greeks, you never called yourself a servant. You never took that title upon yourself because you wanted to be sure that whenever you encountered people, you did everything you could to make them respect you and look up to you. Does that sound like another culture we may know? So among the Greeks, it would be a, uh, it would be a name that, that you would never own. But among the Jews, it had enormous importance. You read through the Old Testament, and we find that servant, certain people were called servants of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, and Job, and all the prophets. 
All of them were called servants of God. It was a title of honor among the, the, the Jewish people. But they didn't miss the point that once you were a follower, once you committed to God, your life is no longer your own. You belong to Him. And He has authority over your life. You get to the New Testament, we find the same thing happens. We find that Mary and Paul and Phoebe and Tychicus, Epaphras, Peter, Jude, are all called servants of God. And hang on to that. Don't miss that fact. That the Bible says you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you lose authority over your life. And he becomes the one who has ultimate authority over our lives. The one who has the right because he owns us. He's redeemed us. So, James introduces himself simply as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about it. Jesus was the greatest celebrity ever. And he became a servant. Philippians chapter 2 explains to us that he didn't try to hang on to his rights as God. But instead took upon himself humanity. And he swaddled his deity in order to live among us. And when we looked at Jesus, we didn't know that he was God. He was fully human. And when you looked at him, he didn't have a halo. He didn't have a shine about him. In fact, as far as we know from what Isaiah describes him, he wasn't even physically attractive. He wasn't somebody you'd look at him and go, Oh, what a man. Oh, yeah, here's Jesus. And you'd look at him and go, Man, he's such a man. Okay, we always show Jesus. I, I call him the, 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 the bearded lady. <laughs> he's always got this flowing hair. Beautiful, handsome man. Sometimes he's blonde. I don't know where in the world we get that from. Just crazy. He was swarthy. He was dark skinned, dark hair. And Isaiah tells us there was nothing about his physical appearance to attract us to him at all. The greatest celebrity of all took upon himself humanity. And then he came and lived among us. Why did he do this? Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life a ransom for many. When we sold out our lives to Satan, we sold ourselves out to condemn ourselves to hell for eternity. Jesus came and paid the price to buy us back again. And the price was he had to die on the cross. And the price was God took your sin and mine, every filthy thought you've ever had, every wrong thing you've ever done and ever will do. God transferred all of that to Jesus so that he became legally responsible for all of our sins. And then God punished our sins in him. And then Jesus said, it's done. The sins are paid. I can now buy back those who want to come. We have to choose to come, but he can buy us back again. And Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A few weeks ago, Tony preached that passage where Jesus demonstrated this. Remember, by washing the feet of his disciples. And as he washed, washed their feet, he was modeling for them what we have to do as servants of one another. And he said, you need to learn to serve one another. And that's where he made the statement. I didn't come to, to, to be served. But I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so one of the first applications is for us to understand. And we're told repeatedly in the scripture, and we've looked at it in depth for the last few months, that we are designed to serve one another in the church. None of us 
can lord it over another one. In fact, the disciples were arguing as they came into the room, who was going to be the vice president of Jesus' kingdom? And Jesus said to them, listen, understand this, that among the pagans, you rule from the top down. But in the church, you serve from the bottom up. And so you serve in that sense. But there's a beautiful passage where God described how when his son came as a servant, how he was going to function. And I know I've preached this in the past, just live with it. It's such a wonderful passage, okay? He says, when he comes, he's going to bring righteousness and justice to the world. Here is my servant, God says, and he's speaking about Jesus. Isaiah, by the way, if you read the, God, the, the prophecy of Isaiah, he describes Jesus often as the servant of God. And then especially when you get to Isaiah 52 and 53, where he describes the servant sacrificing his life that we might live again. God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Have you ever noticed that we can do law very well? We can't do justice. You find that when you follow legal, uh, legal systems often, that the law will make us do something that is unjust, something that is not righteous. Says there's going to be a time when my servant is going to come and he's going to bring complete justice to the nations. This will be a world that is governed by justice. That's when he comes the second time. God goes on to describe how he's going to do his work the first time around. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God said, when my son comes, he's not going to be what most preachers think you've got to be, an evangelist. Be prepared for this, okay? Are you ready, right? For some reason, they think that you shout out loud and you tell people you're going to go to hell if you don't follow me. Isn't that true? That for some reason, I warned you, I warned you, it was coming. For some reason... There's this thought that if you're going to be a proper evangelist or preacher, you need to shout to people and grab them and shake them and warn them they're going to hell. He said, that's not how Jesus did it. It's not how he did it. The only people he got angry at were the religious leaders. The only people he ever had criticism for were the, were the self-righteous religious leaders of the day. But he didn't get into arguments in the streets. He didn't stand around and yell and shout at people. I had a friend in seminary who needed to read this. Every time you passed him in the hallway, he had somebody backed up against the wall. And he was arguing theology with them. And I used to look at him and think, what are you doing? He was another South African, by the way. I don't know where he got this. After he graduated from seminary, he became a lawyer. And it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm so glad he didn't become a preacher. Because at least as a lawyer, he can do it if he wants to. Jesus, he said, will not crowd or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not going to get into knock-down, drag-out arguments with people. Instead, a bruised reed he will not break. In those days, to make a flute, you would take a reed. And you would take out the pulp on the inside of the reed. And once you remove the pulp, you would then poke gently little holes into the reed so that you could then play music through it. But what often happened is in the process of taking out the pulp or making the little holes or perhaps just using it, the reed would break. And now it was broken. 
useless. And what they would do then is just break it and discard it, throw it away. Because now it was worthless. And he says, when my son comes, he's never going to treat any human being that way. No human being standing before God, before Jesus Christ, would ever think, I'm damaged goods. I'm worthless. I need to be discarded. Do you know how many people in our world battle with that concept in their minds? Battle with that damaged self-image that they feel that if they stood before God, God would be dis cast them aside. He says, that's not how Jesus is going to approach people. There are no damaged goods in this world. Jesus will come to everybody with that kind of mercy, that kind of grace. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In those days, think uh, um, gravy boat. Do you know what a gravy boat looks like? We put gravy inside of it at Thanksgiving and you pour out the, the gravy. That's what the lamps were like. But you put oil inside the lamp. And then you put a little wick inside. And the wick would soak up the oil. And when you lit the end of it, you wouldn't be burning the wick. You'd be burning the oil. And the oil would be drawn through the wick, and that's how it provided light. But your job as a homeowner was to make sure you always kept oil in the lamp. If you didn't, once the oil was used up, the wick would start to burn. And once the wick started to burn, it wasn't giving light, it was giving stink. It would begin to smolder, and you would have this awful black smoke that would come from it, and it would fill the house, and it would be disgusting. And what, the only thing you could do is grab hold of that wick and fling it out the window, or the door so that it no longer polluted the house. And there's, it's a picture here, an image of when we do something wrong in our lives or we don't do something right. And you get to the place where the shame of what you've done begins to overwhelm you. And, the, and, and this, this, this horrible black cloud descends upon you because of what you have done. And a time like that, most of us take somebody like that and fling them aside. Religion flings him aside. Jesus doesn't. He comes, and if we let him, he puts his spirit inside of us, the oil of his spirit, and then he relights us and brings us back to life again. And he says, understand when my son comes as a servant, ultimately he's going to bring justice to the world, but first he's going to change the broken lives of people, and he's going to come to people who've been crushed by life, He's going to come to people who have injured themselves, people who have caused the stench about themselves. And he's going to come and rescue us from ourselves. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We should just quit and go home, but you won't pay me. And then he goes back to what he's going to do. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. It's just an interesting statement. Like, what's that got to do with anything? In those days, the most distant places people knew of were the islands. They had no idea how big the world was. And what God is simply saying here is that there will be nobody anywhere who is not touched by him. That the entire world will be, well, Jesus will touch the entire world. First of all, to bring people back to himself. And then ultimately to bring justice to the world. So, James says, I'm a servant, not a celebrity. But then he names the ultimate celebrity who became a servant. And I want to make an application for us there. And that is that I must put my name here, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what every single one of us is. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've lost the authority of your life. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can still be God of your own life if you want to. 
but realize that if you stay as God of your own life, you're saying, I'm sentencing myself to eternity, cut off from God. So if you've not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ, I beg you to do it, because what you'll find is being a servant of his is actually an honor. Jesus said once, I no longer call you my servants. I'm going to call you my friends. Isn't that cool? He said, I, you, you, you call yourself servant. That's fine. I'm going to call you my friend. I'm going to bring you into what I'm doing in the world. What is he doing in the world? Well, he described it this way. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Where this happened was that on one occasion, Jesus was moving around, and there was a traitor by the name of Zacchaeus, a man who was a tax collector, and he was considered by the Jewish people to be a traitor because what they did was that they stole more than they should from people. They were literally the mafia of the day. And there was this man named Zacchaeus. He was kind of short, and he couldn't see over the tops of the crowd, so he climbed up in a tree. And Jesus, as he was walking by, looked up at Zacchaeus and he said, we had, used to have a Sunday school song, Zacchaeus, come on down because I'm coming to your house for tea. He said to him, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming to stay at your house. And so he went to Zacchaeus' house and the people were like, oh, he's hanging out with sinners. He's hanging out with the worst possible sinner you can imagine. And Jesus said, hey, the reason I'm doing it is because I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus became a follower of Jesus Christ. He gave back. He said, I'm going to give back twice what I've extorted from other people. I'm going to give it back. And Jesus said, salvation has now come to this Jewish man. But one of the interesting things is that as Jesus ministered and as the church began to minister, that salvation was offered not to the Jews, but beyond. And in fact, the Jewish people were supposed to understand you're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. You're supposed to go to those who are not yet in God's family and bring them in. And there's a beautiful passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, we've sung about the glory of God. We've seen the glory of God that he doesn't take broken people and fling us away aside. Watch this description of God. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you notice two interesting words in there? Fear and love. And you go, wait, wait, wait. Which are we supposed to do? Both. God is God. And I'm not. <laughs> and so fear of God is a natural, normal thing to recognize the, the awesome, frightful authority of God. But he doesn't want us to live a life in terror. He wants us to love him. And it's interesting. Notice over and over we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. They ask Jesus, what's the number one commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Ponder this for a moment. God wants us to love him. Fully. Before we serve him, he wants us to love him. And boy, I tell you what, this has brought me up short this week to keep thinking. Okay, wait. Before he tells us what to do, he says, I want you to love me with your entire being. Huh. Peter, do you love me? Jesus said. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. God wants us to love him. How much do you love God? How deep 
is your love for God? I've got to tell you, it, it's the sort of thing I look at and go, love? He says, I want you to love me. That's Hero Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Central statement to Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's all of you. God wants us to love him. And part of worship on Sundays and part of us coming together is to get to know him more and more. And as we get to know him more and more, to get to love him more and more. That's a whole nother sermon for another day. But just think about that. God wants us to love him. And he's talking to Israel, but in a sense, he's also describing us. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today so that your life will be miserable and you'll be pushed around by me. <laughs> for your own good. He says, I give these commands because I love you, and I'm doing them for your own good. Well, what kind of a God would do that? For the Lord your God is God of gods, Fear him. And Lord of Lords, fear him. The great God, mighty and awesome, fear him. Who shows no partiality and accepts no brides, bribes, fear him. He's awesome and fear of him is a natural thing to do. But then love him. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. He's talking about Martians. He's talking about people from Venus and people from Saturn and extraterrestrials who come to earth. Notice what he says. I care for the fatherless and the widow, and I love the alien. The aliens were those who were outside of God's family, were not yet inside God's family. And he said, I need you to understand something. I not only love you, I love those who are outside as well. And he says, and you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. God said to the children of Israel, your job is to love the aliens. You were an alien once. You were brought into my family. You didn't have any claim to me at all. You were brought into my family. And now your job is to love those who are outside the kingdom of God. Why? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so one of the factors about serving God that was assigned to Jesus that was assigned to the disciples when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. One of the factors of serving God that comes down to you and me is that we're to love those who are outside of the family of God. We're to love those who are not yet Christians. We live in a day and age when everything is becoming alienated, where people are splitting apart politically. And as people split apart politically, one of the things we as a church have to be really careful of, and that is to remember that our first calling is not to be a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. Our first calling is to be a servant of the living God. And as we now enter into this coming political season, understand this. Our job is not to persuade people to our political perspectives. Our job is to win people into the family of God. And so as we go forward, politics is banned from this campus. Politics is banned from our small groups. Politics is banned because that is not our primary job. We all have our own opinions. We all have our own values, and mine bleed out of me all of the time. I know that, okay? But we've got to understand that we've been set here as servants of God with something way more important than electing the next president. 
And that is reaching out to those outside of the family of God. And you're going to find that they may not politically agree with you. It doesn't matter. They're not the enemy. Okay? Anybody who, think about this, anybody who's not in the family of God is not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. They're the victims of Satan. And our job is to be prepared to do what Jesus does. Here's a beautiful thought. Jesus seeks us more than we seek him. He could have stayed in heaven. He really could have. He'd have just said, let the world go to hell. I'm not leaving heaven. He came to earth and became human for us because he came to seek us. And he seeks us more than we seek him. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, it's not because you started the search. It's because he came and got you. He came and dragged you into his kingdom. He came seeking for you. He seeks us more than we seek him. And here's the interesting thing. He believes we can be found. Okay? Isn't that amazing? He looked at Raymond in high school and said, Oh! Worthless! Oh! And he came and he searched for me and he found me because he believes that we can be we found. That's how we must look at our neighbors. That's how we must look at the world around us. I found a book this, this last week that has done research on people outside. Now, we bought into the myth that the world outside is hostile to Christianity. That's the myth we've been told, that the whole world out there in America, all the people out there are hostile to Christianity, and there's just us few left, and we're the little group who are going to be the faithful ones in the middle of all of this, and the world is hostile toward us. So they said, let's find out if this is true. How does the world respond? And here's just some of the things. They found that 50% of unchurched individuals would respond to an invitation from a friend to attend church. 50% would respond to an invitation. Unchurched people who don't go to church at all, if a friend invited them to go to church, would say yes. You know why they don't come? Because we don't invite them. Because we don't, we're too scared. They may say no. They might. 50% of them will say no. But 50% of them might say yes. And why should we bring them to church? Because here, when they come into this presence, they meet Jesus Christ in us. That's the power. That, that in you, they see one little spark of Jesus. You bring them in here, there's a glow. And that's one reason to invite people to church. 55% would respond to an invitation from a family member. Think about that. You've got family members who would say yes, if you just have the courage to say to them, why don't you come with me to church? Now, Interesting factor that came up too, that 33% of the unchurched people expect that sometime in the future they're going to start going to church regularly again. Isn't that interesting? One third of the people out there who are not attending churches expect I'm going to go back to church. And watch this, 39% of millennials, 39% of millennials who we think are people who've walked away from the church, they expect to return to church regularly. Interesting thing is during the ages of 18 through 22, they do that. When they go to college, a lot of millennials walk away from the church for a while. But then from age 22 onward, they begin to come back. And they begin to return because now they realize, I need something more than what my professors have told me, all of this, 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 these elementary lies. I need to find something solid to build my life on. And 39% of them expect to come back again. There's an occasion when Jesus told his disciples, I tell you, open your eyes. And look at the fields for their ripe to harvest. That's how we must see our neighborhoods. That's how we must see St. Marcus Carlsbad all around us, Vista. We must understand that there are people out there who do not yet know Jesus.
And Jesus has sent us as his servants to invite them, to draw them toward him. And sometimes it's just simple. Hey, church, 10 o'clock Sunday morning. It's fantastic. You've got to come to our church and experience what we experience. Invite them to come to church so that we can introduce them to Jesus Christ. One of the, be one of the benefits I had as a baby believer, I'd just become a Christian at the age of 17, it so happened that two of the big mission organizations in southern Africa had their headquarters in my hometown. Africa Evangelical Fellowship and the Evangelical Alliance Mission both had their main headquarters in my hometown. And some of their key staff members attended this little Baptist church that met in a school that I started to attend. And so I was around these people who had left their homes, come clear across the world, and who sacrificially were serving their lives to lead Africans to faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't remember if it was the first Sunday after I became a Christian or the second, but somewhere in there they said, all right, Raymond, you're coming with us. I was like, okay, what are we going to do? We went to the mine compounds. The mine compounds would bring miners in from all over southern Africa. And you'd have thousands of men living in these enormous compounds. And they were separated by tribes. So the Zulus were in one section, the Sutu were in another, Shangan in another, Tswana in another, so that the tribes were all segregated. The missionaries took me with them, and they gave me this enormous box with a strap that went around my neck, and they taught me a phrase in Fanikalo, which was a trade language. And the phrase was this, Kohinilo Mshlapagawin. Why don't you say that with me? Kohinilo Okay, you must get the wena. Okay. Kohinilo mshlapagawena means of what tribe are you? And so we would go into the mine compounds. It is terrifying, I've got to tell you. You walk into there with hundreds of thousands of these enormous men. And walking through there and going up to them and saying, Kohinilo mshlapagawena. And they would say, Shangan, and you pull a gospel tract that explains who Jesus is in Shangan, or Tswana, or Zulu, or Sutu. And we would hand out those pamphlets to them. Here was the benefit. I don't know if any of those men ever became followers of Jesus Christ. Hope they did. But the interesting factor is that implanted in my brain was this thought. You don't live for yourself, Raymond. You live for those who don't know Jesus yet. And so you're going to help us. And so on Sunday afternoons, we would go to the mines and walk around and hand out. You know what was interesting? Is we had sometimes there would people be hostile. Most of the time, we'd have a crowd of people around you and be handing out those gospel tracts to them. Jesus said, look at the fields. They're white unto harvest. And right now in your life and mind, we have friends and family members who are white unto harvest. If only somebody would care for them enough to serve them by inviting them. So I'm going to ask you to just pray about this and to think about it. And that's what's the name of my unchurched friend or family member whom Jesus is seeking? Somebody in your life that Jesus says, as my servant, I want you to serve me by praying about that person. And then when the time is right, invite them, bring them close to my people so that they can hear me. My name, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If I believed in Jesus, it's too late to back out. That's our job description. 
Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that Joel Robbins, a printer in Kansas City, heard this instruction from you. And he left Kansas City and brought his family to South Africa so that Raymond could hear the gospel. Many others too, but I thank you that they were obedient. And probably all of us in this room may be able to point to one person who was faithful to you and who served you by serving us. And Father God, we pray for San Marcos, for Carlsbad, for Vista, for the people who surround us. Tony, you said four cities. Mm-hmm. Which one am I missing? Carlsbad? Encinitas. Encinitas. Oh, okay. We're close enough to Encinitas. <laughs> Over there where all the hippies live. Okay. Father God, there are four cities right within shooting distance of us. Wrong word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right within distance of us. And I pray that you would help us as your people to be faithful witnesses of you. That we may serve you by serving them. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.